Section 1 of Conquest Over Time This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. CONQUEST OVER TIME by Michael Shara Section 1 When the radiogram came in, it was 10.28 ship's time, and old 29 was exactly 3.4 light-years away from Diomed 3. Travis threw her wide open and hoped for the best. By 4.10 that same afternoon, minus three burned-out generators and fronting a warped iron screen, Old 29 touched the atmosphere and began homing down. It was a very tense moment. Somewhere down in that great blue disk below, a mapping command ship sat in an open field, sending up the beam which was guiding them down. But it was not the mapping command that was important. The mapping command was always first. What mattered now was to come in second, any kind of second, close or wide, mile or eyelash, but second come hell or high water. The clouds peeled away. Travis, staring anxiously down, could see nothing but mist and heavy cloud. He could not help sniffing the air and groaning inwardly. There is no smell quite as expensive as that of burned generators. He could hear the old man repeating over and over again, as if all space was not one of the richest companies in existence, "'Burned generators, boy, is burned money, and don't you forget it!' "'Fat chance me forgetting it!' Travis thought gloomily, twitching his nostrils. But a moment later, he did. For Diomed Three was below him, and Diomed Three was an open planet. It happened less often nowadays that the mapping command ran across intelligent life, and it was even less often that the intelligent life was humanoid. But when it happened, it was an event to remember. For space travel had brought with it two great problems— the first was contact, the second was trade. For many years man had prohibited contact with intelligent humanoids who did not yet have space travel, on the grounds of the much-discussed maturity theory. As time went by, however, and humanoid races were discovered which were biologically identical with man, and as great swarms of completely alien, often hostile races were also discovered, the maturity theory went into discard. A human being— ran the new slogan, is a human being, and so came the first great contact law, which stated that any humanoid race, regardless of its place on the evolutionary scale, was to be contacted, to be accepted, yea, welcomed, as the phrase went, into the human community. And following this, of course, there came trade, for it was the businessmen who had started the whole thing in the first place. Hence the day of the open planet. A humanoid race was discovered by the mapping command, the MC made its investigation, and then sent out the word. And every company in the galaxy, be it monstrous huge or piddling small, made a mad rush to be first on the scene. The government was very strict about the whole business, the idea being that planets should make their contracts with companies rather than the government itself so that if any shady business arose, the company at fault could be kicked out, and there would be no chance of a general war. Also, went the reasoning, under this system there would be no favorites. Whichever company, no matter its resources, had a ship closest at the time of the call, 
was the one to get first bargaining rights. Under this setup, it was very difficult for any one company to grow too large, or to freeze any of the others out, and quite often a single contract on a single planet was enough to transform a fly-by-night outfit into a major concern. So that was the basis of the open planet, but there the real story has only begun. Winning the race did not always mean winning the contract. It was what you found when you got down that made the job of contact man one of the most hazardous occupations in history. Each new planet was wholly and completely new. There were no rules, and what you learned on all the rest meant nothing. You went from a matriarchy which refused absolutely to deal with men, the tenth ship to arrive had a lady doctor and therefore got the contract, to a planet where the earth was sacred and you couldn't dig a hole in it, so mining was out, to a planet which considered your visit the end of the world and promptly committed mass suicide. The result of this was that a successful contact man had to be a remarkable man to begin with, a combined speed demon, sociologist, financier, diplomat, and geologist, all in one. It was a job in which successful men not only made fortunes, they made legends. It was that way with Pat Travis. Sitting at the view-screen, watching the clouds whip by and the first dark clots of towns beginning to shape below, Travis thought about the legend. He was a tall, frail, remarkably undernourished-looking man with large, soft brown eyes. He did not look like a legend, and he knew it, and being a man of great pride, it bothered him. More and more, as the years went by, his competitors blamed his success on luck. It was not Pat Travis that was the legend, it was the luck of Pat Travis. Over the years he had learned not to argue about it, and it was only during these past few months, when his luck had begun to slip, that he mentioned it at all. Luck no more makes a legend, he knew, than raw courage makes a fighter. But legends die quick in deep space, and his own had been a-dying for a good long while now, while other lesser men, the luck all theirs, plucked planet after planet from under his nose. Now at the view-screen he glanced dolefully across the room at his crew, the curly-headed young Dollinger and the profound Mr. Tripp. In contrast to his own weary relaxation, both of the young men were tensed and anxious, peering into the screen. They had come to learn under the great Pat Travis, but in the last few months what they seemed to have learned most was luck. If you happened to be close, you were lucky, and if you weren't, you weren't. But if they were to get anywhere in this business, Travis knew, they had to learn that luck, more often than not, follows the man who burns his generators. He stopped thinking abruptly as a long yellow field came into view. He saw silver flashing in the sun, and his heart jumped into his throat. Old Twenty-Nine settled fast. One ship or two. In the distance he could see the grey jumbled shapes of a low-lying city. The sun was shining warmly. It was spring on Diomed Three, and across the field a blue river sparkled, but Travis paid no attention. There was only one silver gleam. Still he waited, not thinking but when they were close enough he saw that he was right. The mapping command ship was alone. Old Twenty-Nine, burned generators and all, had won the race. "'My boys,' he said gravely, turning to the crew, "'Pat Travis rides again!' 
but they were already around him, pounding him on the back. He turned happily back to the screen, for the first time beginning to admire the view. By jing, he thought, what a lovely day! That was his first mistake. It was not a lovely day. It was absolutely miserable. Travis had his first pang of doubt when he stepped out of the ship. The field was empty, not a native in sight. But Dollinger was out before him, standing waist-high in the grass and heaving deep lungfuls of the flower-scented air. He yelled that he could already smell the gold. "'I say, Trav,' Tripp said thoughtfully, from behind him, "'where's the fatted calf?' "'In this life,' Travis said warily, "'one is often disappointed.' A figure climbed out of a port over at the mapping command ship and came walking slowly toward them. Travis recognized him and grinned. "'Hey, Hort!' "'Hey, Trav!' Horton replied from a distance. But he did not say anything else. He came forward with an odd look on his face. Travis did not understand. Ed Horton was an old buddy, and Ed Horton should be happy to see him. Travis felt his second pang. This one went deep. "'Anybody beat us here?' "'No, you're the first, Trav.' Dollinger whooped. Travis relaxed slightly, and even the glacial trip could not control a silly grin. Horton caught a whiff of air from the open lock. "'Burn generators. You must have come like hell.' His face showed his respect. Between burning a generator and blowing one entirely, there is only a microscopic distance— and it takes a very steady pilot, indeed, to get the absolute most out of his generators without also spreading himself and his ship over several cubic miles of exploded space. <laughs> like a striped-tailed ape! Dollinger chortled. Man, you should see the boss handle the ship. I thought every second we were going to explode in technicolor. Well, Horton said feebly, burn generators. Shame. He lowered his eyes and began towing the ground. Travis felt suddenly ill. "'What's the matter, Hort?' Horton shrugged. "'I hate like heck to be the one to tell you, Trav, but seeing as I know you, they sent me—' "'Tell me what?' Now Dollinger and Tripp both realized it and were suddenly silent. "'Well, if only you'd taken a little more time. But not you, not old Pat Travis. By damn, Pat, you came in here like a downhill locomotive. It ain't my fault. Hort, straighten it out. What's not your fault? Horton sighed. Listen, it's a long story. I've got a buggy over here to take you into town. They're putting you up at the hotel so you can look the place over. I'll tell you on the way in. The heck with that! Dollinger said indignantly, "'We want to see the man!' "'You're not going to see the man, Sonny,' Horton said patiently. "'You are, as a matter of fact, the last people on the planet the man wants to see right now.' Dollinger started to say something, but Travis shut him up. He told Tripp to stay with the ship and took Dollinger with him. At the end of the field was a carriage straight out of seventeenth-century England, and the things that drew it, if you closed your eyes, look reasonably similar to horses. The three men climbed aboard. There was no driver. Horton explained that the horses would head straight for the hotel. 
"'Well, all right,' Travis said. "'What's the story?' "'Don't turn those baby browns on me,' Horton said gloomily. "'I would have warned you if I could, but you know the law says we can't show favoritism.' Travis decided the best thing to do was wait with as much patience as possible. After a while Horton had apologized thoroughly and completely, although what had happened was certainly not his fault, and finally got on with the tale. Now, this here planet, he said cautiously, is wacky in a lot of ways. First off, they call it Mert. Mert. Fine name for a planet. Just plain Mert. And they live in houses strictly from Dickens. All carriages, no sewers, narrow streets, stuff like that. With technology roughly equivalent to 17th century. But now, see there? See that building over there? Travis followed his pointing finger through the trees. A large white building of blinding marble was coming slowly into view. Travis's eyes widened. You see? Just like the blinking Parthenon or Acropolis, whichever it is. All columns and frescoes. In the middle of a town looks just like London. Makes no sense, but there it is. And that's not all. Their government is Grecian, too, complete with Senate and citizens. No slaves, though. Well, not exactly. You wouldn't call them slaves. Or could you? Heck of a question, that. He paused to brood. Travis nudged him. Yes, well, all that is minor, next to the big thing. This is one of two major countries on the planet. There's a few hill tribes, but these make up about 90% of the population, so you have to deal with these. They never go to war, well, maybe once in a while, but not very often. So no trouble there. The big trouble is one you'd never guess, not in a million years. He stared at Travis unhappily. The whole planet's run on astrology. He waited for a reaction. Travis said nothing. "'It ain't funny,' Horton said. "'When I say run on astrology, I mean really run. Wait till you hear.' "'I'm not laughing,' Travis said. "'But is that all? In this business you learn to respect the native customs, so if all we have to do—' "'I ain't finished yet,' Horton said ominously. "'You don't get the point.' Everything these people do is based on astrology. And that means business, too, lad. Business, too. Every event that happens on this cockeyed world, from a picnic to a wedding to a company merger or a war, it's all based on astrology. They have it down so exact they even tell you when to sneeze. You ought to see the daily paper. Half of it's solid astrological guidance. All the senators not only have astrologers, they are astrologers. And get this. Every man and woman and child alive on this planet was catalogued the day he was born. His horoscope was drawn up by the public astrologer, a highly honored office, and his future laid out according to what the horoscope said. If his horoscope indicates a man of stature and responsibility, he becomes, by God, a man of stature and responsibility. You have to see it to believe it. 
Kids with good horoscopes are sent to the best schools. People fight to give them jobs. Well, take the courts, for example. When they're trying a case, do they talk about evidence? They do not. They call in a legal astrologer. There's all kinds of branches in the profession. And this joker, all by himself, determines the guilt or innocence of the accused. By checking the aspects. <sighs> Take a wedding. Boy meets girl. Boy likes girl. Does boy go see girl? No. He heads straight for an astrologer. The girl's horoscope is on file in the local city hall, just like everybody else. The astrologer compares the charts and determines whether the marriage will be a good one. He is, naturally, a marital astrologer. He gives the word. If he says no, they don't marry. I could go on for hours, but you really have to see it. Take the case of people who want to have children. They want them born, naturally, at the time of the best possible aspects. So they consult an astrologer, and he gives them a list of the best times for a baby to be conceived. These times are not always convenient. Sometimes it's 4.18 in the morning, and sometimes it's 2.03 Monday afternoon. Yet this is a legitimate excuse for getting out of work. A man goes in, tells his boss it's breeding time, and off he goes without a penny docked. Build a better race, they say. Of course, the gestation period is variable, and they never do hit it right on the nose. But also there are still the natural accidents, so quite a few are born with terrible horoscopes. Holy smoke, Travis muttered. The possibilities of it blossomed in his mind. He began to understand what was coming. Now you begin to see, Horton went on gloomily. Look what an earth man represents to these people. We are the unknown, the completely capital U unknown. Everybody else is a certain definite quantity. His horoscope is on file, and every man on Mert has access to all his potentialities, be they good, bad, or indifferent. But not us. They don't know when we were born, or where, and even if they did, it wouldn't do them any good, because they haven't got any system covering Mars and Jupiter, the planets at home. Everybody else is catalogued, but not us. And just because they believe so thoroughly in their own astrology, they've gotten used to the idea that a man is what his horoscope says he is. But us? What are we? They haven't the vaguest idea. And it scares hell out of them. The only thing they can do is check with one of the branches, what they call horary astrology, and make a horoscope of the day we landed. Even if that tells them nothing about us in particular, at least it tells them, or so they believe, all about our mission to Mert. Because the moment our ship touched the ground was the birth date of our business here. He paused and regarded Travis with woeful sympathy. With us, luckily, it was all right. The mapping command just happened to hit here on a good day. But you... Travel, buddy. For once you came just too damn fast. Oh, my God, Travis breathed. We landed on a bad day. Bad, Horton sighed. Man, it's terrible. End of section one.